1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Thomas Cathcart. Thomas is a New York Times bestselling author and the author of the book, There is No God and Mary is His Mother, Rediscovering Religionless Christianity. Also musically featured throughout this episode is New Tycoon. New Tycoon is an indie pop project from Ohio. You can get connected with Thomas and New Tycoon and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have Thomas Cathart with us. Uh, Thomas, you have done a lot of things in your life. Uh, you have been a social worker. You've also been an author, including an author of a New York Times bestseller uh, a few years ago. But you also just wrote an incredible book called There Is No God and Mary Is His Mother, Rediscovering Religionless Christianity. Now, you might not know this about me, but this podcast used to be called Religionless Church. Uh, and I was very much inspired at that point in my life by Bonhoeffer. And then for a variety of different reasons, I ended up changing the name of the podcast. But a lot of those early episodes were really about religionless Christianity at a lot of conversations. Um, in fact, I had Jeffrey Pugh. I don't know if you have stumbled across Jeffrey Pugh in your work. He has done a lot of Bonhoeffer scholarship. But he was on my podcast very early on uh, talking about religionless Christianity and everything. So I'm really excited for this conversation. So with all that said, who is Thomas Cathcart to Thomas Cathcart? That's a very good question. Yeah, I just listened to one of your other interviews with uh, Dr. De La Torre, I think his name mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, geez, I don't know. I seem to be somebody different all the time. <laughs> you can probably tell from my various careers I guess I'm I'm somebody who, as you know from the book, I went to divinity school 100 years ago. And even though I dropped out and did a lot of other stuff in the, the world, as they say, this stuff has always been on my mind. I've always dipped into it, reading, been through various churches of various denominations, read a lot of uh, books by folks uh, 
in the so-called emerging church. Mm. I was never an evangelical, so that isn't my that isn't my history. But uh, I found a lot of them interesting. Uh, Rachel Held Evans and mm -hmm. uh, uh, Nadia Boltz-Weber and Brian McLaren, a bunch of them. But I've always read this stuff, and I've always been absorbed by it, and it's always bugged me, uh, and I've always wrestled with it. And uh, I've written a couple articles from time to time, but I've never really sat down and done the whole shtick. So that's who I am, I guess, and how I got here. I've been retired from, you know, regular jobs for a long time. I'm 81. But in the meantime, as you said, I've written a bunch of books. This is the first religious or religionless. I guess they're all religionless, but this is the first, <laughs> quote, religionless uh, book in the bunch. The rest of them were just kind of, some of them were kind of silly. Some of them were more serious, but uh, this is the first book that I, that I really sort of felt like I needed to write this. It is bugging me in my, you know, it's, it's been in my brain all these years. That's super cool that you um, were a part of some of the conversations with the emergent church movement. I actually, one of my last questions will be at least in my mind connected to the emergent church movement. I actually worked at Solomon's Porch for a while. I don't know if you know what Solomon's Porch is with Doug Paget. Um, so yeah, Doug yes. and I used to work together a lot. I was the youth director at Solomon's Porch. I only so, know it yeah. because I uh, clicked on it on your website. Oh, yeah, very interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doug and the emergent church uh, were you know connected. He was definitely one of those leaders. He was best friends with Nadia and Brian and all those folks. So uh, in fact, I've met a lot of them. Uh, so. Yeah. So like you mentioned, you've written a number of books. What did you learn about yourself while you were writing uh, There Is No God and Mary Is His Mother? Well, that's a very good question. I was thinking about that the other day because I, I just reread the book in preparation for my interview. And I thought, gee, that's something I don't think I knew until I wrote it. If anything, I'd say in general, I, I kind of learned how to put a bunch of pieces together. I had a bunch of fragments in my mind, uh, but I don't think they really all came together until I was writing the book. And I saw, you know, some of the connections between biblical religion and, you know, my sort of philosophical theological stuff uh, that I'd never seen before. And uh, I don't think I would have known if I hadn't sat down and started writing. Wow. And then kind of along those lines, what did you learn, like, theologically or even historically while you were writing the book that maybe you didn't know before? Maybe there was some sort of fact or maybe there was a theologian that you stumbled across and there was an idea that they, they've shared that you were like, wait, I... I've never heard that before. That was really interesting, and I want to incorporate that into the book. I had read in Kierkegaard, but until I was putting this together, I hadn't really uh, zoned in on some of the connections between him and my mentor, who was Paul Tillich. Mm -hmm. Even Paul Tillich, I'd read a lot of Paul Tillich, but until I was writing this, I had to go back and revisit uh, some of it. And uh, I don't know that I found new stuff, but I found more articulation uh, of uh, theological ideas than I, than I had had before. You know, I sort of got the idea of the new being and how that's really the crux of, of Christianity or religious Christianity for that matter. And that, you know, the dogma and the rest of it doesn't have much to do with it. You know, I sort of had that idea, but until I really sat down and, and read Kierkegaard and Tillich, I felt like a light bulb went on in my head. I went, oh, yeah, I see this in a new way. And I was more turned on by it, I guess, than I, than I had been before. Well, I hope we dive a little bit more into some of those um, really interesting ideas that you learned from them. Uh, before we do that, though, uh, can you provide some like historical context around Bonhoeffer's idea of religionless Christianity? Uh, just because I think his historical context will help 
gear this conversation given like our historical context currently. So yeah, can you talk a little bit about the historical context of Bonhoeffer's idea of religionless Christianity? Yeah. As you know, he had been a pastor and a theologian. When the Nazis came to power, uh, he became very much involved in what they call the confessing church. They had as their uh, kind of central rallying point, uh, they had a uh, document uh, written mostly by Karl Barth uh, in Switzerland. And the idea of it, of course, uh, was that the other churches of, you know, I don't know about a majority, but a huge number of Christian churches said, you know, well, we're all in for the Nazi thing. You know, there were a number, a number of uh, people, some theologians, some pastors, and it was like nuts. And Bonhoeffer and Bart said, no, 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 no. This is the wrong Nine, even. There. He said nine. Yeah. <laughs> so he actually started an underground seminary when uh, that was a dangerous thing to do. That's why it was underground. At one point, uh, some people at uh, Union Seminary here in New York City, including Reinhold Niebuhr, said, we've got to get this guy out of there. They're going to kill him. And so they invited him to Union uh, to teach. And he did for a year. And they said, no, I got to go back. You know, the church, the confessing church uh, is struggling and I need to be there. That's, that's what's happening right now. And I can't wait it out in the United States. So he goes back. Eventually he joins a group who, uh, among other things, plan to kill Hitler. And it's unclear whether he bought into that or not. Uh, but I think the supposition by most people is that he did. Uh, in any case, he belonged to the organization that did this. So the famous story that probably everybody knows uh, is that during a meeting, uh, there was somebody high in the military, high in the Nazi uh, military, uh, who was part of this movement. And uh, he had a briefcase, uh, which he carried into the room, sat down next to Hitler, and it had a bomb in it. And he was going to blow Hitler and himself and probably several other people up. Uh, but somehow somebody gained, became suspicious. They found the bomb. They arrested him, of course. And then they began to arrest anybody who was part of the movement. And Bonhoeffer was one of them. So uh, he sat for a couple of years, actually, in prison. He thought at one point he was going to have a trial. And he thought at one point he might actually be acquitted. Or I guess he thought that. He, he writes that to his family and friends. Uh, but who knows whether, you know, he was trying to reassure them that he was okay, or I don't know exactly why he did it. But in any case, uh, he th seems to think that he was going to be acquitted. Of course, he wasn't. Uh, and eventually he was hanged. And during all this time, he writes letters to his family, and he writes letters to a very dear friend of his uh, named Betka. And uh, Betka collects these uh, after the war and publishes them in a book he called Letters and Papers from Prison. And in there, toward the end of, of this, uh, he begins to say, the new way to go here has to be religionless, because we've seen that religion can be corrupted so easily. And, you know, not just corrupted around the edges, but corrupted by Nazism, of all things. And so he said, you know, this, this isn't the way to go anymore. Religion, you know, religion, Christianity, uh, isn't speaking to people. Obviously, or not speaking loud enough. Uh, we need to uh, we need to do something which I'm picturing in my mind as religionless, but I don't really know what that means. Uh, 
-hmm. uh, and unfortunately, before he had a chance to sort of flesh it out, uh, in the meantime, he was hanged. So it's kind of a hanging in the air as to exactly what he meant by religion's, religionless Christianity and how it, you know, as I say in the book, it's, it's how does that differ from just religionlessness altogether? Mm -hmm. Why is it religionless Christianity of all things? Uh, so he, that's what he was working with. But unfortunately, he didn't get to work it all out. Uh, but in the meantime, he, he talked about some things that he knew it wasn't. You know, he knew that, it, that the Christian religion couldn't be something that just kind of plugs uh, God into all the remaining holes in our knowledge, uh, you know, both of the universe or of ourselves. Uh, you know, it can't be a plug-in. Uh, somehow, uh, uh, God has to be more, more central. But, you know, he was, he was sort of wrestling around the edges with this. At one point, he says, you know, I don't know why, but I seem to be more attracted to non-Christian people than I am to Christian people. And uh, it gave him pause. He thought, it reminded me of, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, he could have hung out with the Pharisees if he mouthed the right words, but he preferred to hang out with the sinners and publicans and whatever. So, you know, it sounded, you know, sounded like Bonhoeffer was kind of wrestling with that. Like, what's this, what's that about? <laughs> I don't have any interest in these Christian people. I'm, I'm much more comfortable around the religious people. So that's kind of how I got to that. <laughs> yeah, that's super helpful. So that's Bonhoeffer's context and the way that religionless Christianity, at least the way he conceived of it, was kind of brought about in, in the context for it. Can you talk a little bit about today's context? and? Like what? What would be religionless Christianity in this context? So, yeah, talk about the context of kind of religionlessness going on in America and the Western world, uh, and yeah, the general context. And yeah, there might be some connections to Bonhoeffer's context at the time. Yeah, one of the people that I read was Harvey Cox, who had written a book uh, about uh, secularism back in the sixties. Uh, it became very popular. It's a bestseller, actually. Uh, one of the few theological books in the history of the world that became a bestseller. And his his idea was that we've got to find God in the secular because he's not in the churches anymore. <laughs> and he had a very, you know, kind of high concept uh, idea of that. But when he tried to kind of flesh it out, I think he came up against the same wall that Bonhoeffer did. Mm. Uh, that, you know, how is secular religion any different from secular secular and uh he's i think he worked on that the rest of his life i guess my answer to your question is i don't know <laughs> i don't think Bonhoeffer knew and i don't think he knew sometimes i know it when i see it part of uh i like part of what i see in this emerging church uh, movement i have two reactions to the emerging church sometimes uh, i think well this this is very interesting i'm sure but not particularly to me, because it sounds like a lot of evangelicals have discovered mainline Protestantism. <laughs> and I'm sure you get that too. The mm -hmm. People in the evangelical community, I'm sure, hang that on you. But uh, half of the other half of the time, I think, yeah, there's something, something here that that retains the evangelical part of it in its original sense of turning one on, uh, you know, turning one around, uh, you know, having your life uh, changed. That's often missing in mainline Protestantism. So that's, uh, 
that's part of part of what I've I've, I've not forgotten what your question was. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's part of uh, you know how I've, I've tried to tried to find religion with Christianity someplace. Sometimes I even find it in the churches. Uh, as you know, in the final chapter of the book, I go back on a Sunday to my little church, and everybody's saying the creed and you know all the usual stuff that I have just spent most of the book saying. Well, this ain't where where it's at. And I think, well, I don't know. Maybe this is where it's at for a lot of people. You know, there were people in there that they didn't think were just mouthing it or you know, just had a very turned off understanding of Christianity. They seem to be people whose lives were illuminated in some way by Jesus Christ. So maybe, maybe religion, the religion isn't all that bad either. I don't know. It's, it's really, it's an open question. I, I'm not sure it could ever be answered because if you could answer it, then that would be the new religion. You know what I mean? Right. It's got to be, you know, it's, it's sort of the point in time that, that Jesus appeared in the New Testament where he didn't try to create a new religion either. You know, somebody had said to him, you know, well, what is it you're talking about here? You know, what, what do you want for rituals? What do you want for, for uh, hymns or, you know, whatever? He would have said that you're missing it. I That isn't where it's at. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure there is a real good answer that one could put one's, you know, ordinary mind around. So there may be a cop out, but that's, it's my cop out. <laughs> yeah. The, you also talk about in the book about like all these different reasons why people are becoming more disconnected with a religion, especially like Christianity. Can you talk about what some of those reasons are? I think that plays a part into some of our today's context. Yeah. I think in some, I think it's different for different people. I think that for some people, even though, you know, the last 150 years of theology has, has sort of argued against this, I think there's still a lot of people uh, in the pews who think that Christianity is a matter of beliefs. You know, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, I believe, uh, you know, in uh, the Prince of Peace, or, you know, I believe in, I believe in X, uh, where X is some idea or ethical, uh, you know, position or something like that. That's, to me, as I say, I shouldn't judge other people because some people might really find that the entree to the real McCoy. But I think for a lot of people, it isn't an entree to the real McCoy. It's uh, it's just, a, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like the religious version uh, of, uh, of uh, politics, you know, it's, and maybe that's why in, in a lot of uh, the evangelical community, uh, they see they're one and the same thing, mm-hmm. uh, or the one follows from the other anyway. Uh, but I don't think I don't think that works for a lot of people. I don't think it it even really works for some of the people who say it works, because I I think uh, you know their their uh, actions and their politics belie the fact uh, that uh, that they're open and. Uh, and uh, moving with the spirit and, you know, all the things that constitute real Christianity. Uh, so that's one of the ways that I think uh, people went wrong. Uh, they thought it was about beliefs. Mm-hmm. What else? Um, I guess on the other end, of the, and you probably know more about this than I do, but on the other end of the scale, I think there are people who feel that if you get that heavenly feeling, you know, if you feel like, 
if you feel like singing, <laughs> whatever, that, that that's the same thing as being the church. Uh, well, it may be for an individual, but it it doesn't um, it, it can't be it can't be the the uh, the the way of of a movement. It can't be the way of Christianity or even religionless Christianity. You know, if it becomes individual and personal, mm. uh, and it becomes difficult to tell, you know, what your feelings are about anything from your feelings about Jesus Christ, then you know that's that's not on. That's not our target either. So I think those are a couple ways that that we kind of get off the track, you know. And I get off the track, you know. I'm I'm really not feeling judgmental about anybody's take on religion because I've been there on a day to day basis. I'm sometimes there. Uh, so you know, this isn't a a judgment, but but it is, you know. I think the times when when we're inspired. To see that that what Jesus as the Christ brings as a new being, a new creation, as Paul says, when we really get that in our gut, that's Phil McCoy, and and all else follows from it. You know, uh, such ethical uh, actions as you perform stem from that. I don't know if your political beliefs stem from that. For some people, they probably do, mm-hmm. uh, but but that's. That's the key, I think, uh, is, you know, as Tillich says, if if you uh, don't experience Jesus as the Christ, as the new being, the new creation, then, you know, you have a ways to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all have a ways to go, <laughs> including me. But, yeah, but that's that's the vision, I think. So with that historical context of Bonhoeffer's time and then with all these different reasons why people are becoming disconnected with Christianity today. What do you think religionless Christianity is? You have kind of touched on this a little bit throughout this interview so far, but yeah, let's flesh that out a little bit more. What is religionless Christianity to you? A, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make a very good interview, so let me try B. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, sometimes I think that maybe within the churches that that people who who really do feel that there's a new creation, maybe those people need to be more vocal. I don't know what that would mean exactly, but that uh, maybe seminaries uh, need to concentrate on, you know, turning out people who realize that that without the new creation, uh, you got nothing. I don't know. I don't know where. I don't know where things go. I wish I did. <laughs> I comfort myself that Bonhoeffer didn't know either. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's it's a question of staying open. How do you create staying open? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I have trouble creating it myself, let alone in the church or the world. I don't, I don't know if that's helpful in fleshing it out or not, but that's about as far as I get. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. 
You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. You mentioned before that religionless Christianity is not like a belief-based Christianity. And many of my listeners grew up in a kind of Christianity that was completely belief-based. You know, as long as they believe the right things, then they were a Christian. Mainline Protestants grew up that way, too. Yeah. So with religionless Christianity not being belief-based, what do you think religionless Christianity can offer somebody who is dissatisfied with a Christianity that is belief-based? Like, what, what is it that religionless Christianity can offer them, given the fact that they might be totally dissatisfied with this, like, belief-based religion? Well, this is going to sound like a cliche, but I think it's the only answer. The, the only thing that's, that's ever made a difference or that's ever going to make a difference in other people's lives is love. And it doesn't necessarily have to be religious, doesn't necessarily have to be Christian, doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, any doesn't have to be any particular thing. But wherever wherever there's love in the world, there's a new creation. And so at an individual level, I guess the idea is to stay open, criticize yourself when you're unloving, uh, try to be open to being loving. Uh, you can't force that either. Uh, it's either there is revelation or it isn't. But to try to at least uh, stay open and uh, talk yourself down from uh, all the things that are contrary to love, <laughs> like your beliefs or your behavior or whatever, how you do that on the grand scale, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, Even Jesus didn't do it on the grand scale. You know, on the grand scale, they killed him. So, you know, he fortunately, uh, you know, there were a handful of people that were like turned on and turned on to the extent that, uh, you know, they had experiences of his being alive after he was dead. People like Paul, who persecuted the church, who all of a sudden has this blinding vision of a new creation and turns around completely and goes on to to be Paul. But uh, had that not happened? I don't know probably would have died out. The Jesus movement probably would have died out. And, and later on, without Constantine making it the state religion, it probably would have died out too. Yeah, you've, you've throughout this interview, you've talked about the new creation. I know in the book, you definitely talk a lot about the kingdom of God and what Jesus meant by that. So can you talk a little bit about what you believe like the new creation or the kingdom of God is and what does that even look like? Let me start with what it's not. I don't think that it's any worldly uh, group, movement, political stance. I think that I, I agree with, uh, you know, Rush and Bush and the people of the social gospel that there is a social element to, to, uh, to Christianity and to, and to the kingdom of God. It's hard to find that in, in the New Testament because, you know, there, you know, Jesus was in a political environment where that wouldn't have helped <laughs> So, you know, you kind of have to read between the lines. But, but I think, uh, you know, to the extent that the people who love are the people who, you know, rise to the top of the society, that's what you need. And it, it doesn't really matter too much whether they're Christian or atheist or Jewish or Muslim or whatever, uh, nor does it matter whether they're Republicans or Democrats. and you know, you know it when you see it. You know, you you watch the political posturing today of 
one side against the other, and you know nobody take the middle. But every once in a while, you see somebody, Martin Luther King. Where did this guy come from? They've been trying to to bring about uh, the social transformation of, of this country since 1865, and they didn't. In fact, they were pushed backward during Reconstruction. All of a sudden, this guy comes from out of nowhere. Well, not from out of nowhere. He was surrounded by a lot of other good people too, but somebody that had the the leadership uh, to a tap into his own source of love and peace, uh, but B, also not retire into the corner, but to somehow be out there and, and suffer the slings and arrows of the opposition. These people come along once in a millennium, <laughs> and or at least once in a century anyway. And I, that's, that's part of the hope of the kingdom of God, I guess, is that we have to keep our eye out <laughs> for the Martin Luther Kings, because you know, and they're out there, I think, you know, there are people, there are people in Congress right now who are, who are trying to, you know, come from a, come from a position of, of um, love and, and, uh, and peace, and it doesn't have much to do with their politics. And somehow we have to hope and encourage and, and support however we can uh, such people, because uh, the alternative is what we have now. Mm-hmm. You've kind of alluded to this throughout this interview so far, and again, I think maybe your interest in the emergent church might be of help here, but what do you think church or Sunday worship and liturgy and all those different parts of Christianity, what does that look like in a religionless Christianity? That's the very question that Bonhoeffer asked. He went, wait a minute, how does this translate into why is a religionless Christianity of all things? And unfortunately, he got hung and the mean hanged in the meantime. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I guess the answer is I don't know. I think that was that was sort of the genius of, of the original evangelical movement that they saw that uh, it had to translate into uh, a felt, emotional, you know, expression as opposed to mouthing creeds or, you know, even biblical passages. I don't know. That kind of went its own way, and you know, some of it's out there that's still pretty good, and a lot of it isn't. Um, and that's why we have the American Church. But I think uh, you know, mainly uh, part part of who I'm keeping my eye on, eye on is the Emergent Church. Like uh, I don't know what. Uh, how do they do this? Richard Hall Evans eventually became an Episcopalian. <laughs> What's that? I'm an Episcopalian, but uh, you know, I I don't. Uh, I'm not sure what what uh, what that meant to her. Why mm-hmm. why she was attracted to that? But uh, yeah, these are the people uh, that I think we need to keep our eye on. Because I I think mm-hmm. as I say, when they're not just in the mode of rediscovering mainline Protestantism, I think the, the evangelical side of it uh, is very promising. And uh, I think we need to keep an eye on people like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Nadia Bolsweber, you know, her, her book has literally turned on a lot of people as did her church. And unfortunately, Rachel uh, Held Evans uh, died prematurely. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I think we, we have to watch, you know, that uh, Mr. Rogers gets quoted all the time as, uh, uh, as his mother telling him, look for the helpers. Well, that's... About as profound as it gets, I think. You know, you you got there. You know, people out there, and 
many of them in, in the emerging church uh, at bear watching and seeing what they got and seeing what transpires out of that in some in some kind of religion you know religious expression of of uh you know their evangelical faith uh it must be out there somewhere but it's still blowing in the wind i think mm -hmm. can, can i turn it around and ask you as somebody who's who's active in you know that that sort of movement i think if i'm reading you correctly mm -hmm. What, what, from your point of view, what what do you see transpiring in the emergent church that gives you hope that that some salvation for Christianity is out there? So I don't want to speak for like every emergent church by any means. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, like the emergent church, which I actually make a, a differentiation between the emergent church and the emerging church. So I don't want to make any claims about like the totality of the emergent church. However, what I can say is my own experience at an emergent church, the, the church that I'm a part of, Solomon's Porch in Minneapolis. And some of the things that we do, I really do think, I think is like this kind of manifestation of what I think you're articulating in this religion, this Christianity, which is why I resonate so much with it. Um, so, for example, one of the things that we do that I, I've always loved about Solomon's Porch is that for our liturgies, we're the people that create all of them. So we don't have like a book of common prayer. We don't have these lectionaries or anything. We're the people that make them. So when it comes to like a call and response that we do, it's it's a it's a poet at our church that makes that. And then we end up, you know, doing the call and response together. Every single one of our songs is a song that has been made by our community. So likely you would never have heard any of the music that we play and sing at our church. For sermons, for example, it's not really like somebody talking to the group of people for 15 minutes or however long. It's a conversation. And so we we even designed our space where we tore out all the pews where, you know, you're just you're facing um, to the front and everybody's looking in the back of each other's heads. Uh, instead of that, we tore out all those pews and put in a bunch of couches in a sort of encircled design and that way everybody can see each other's face and so the person in the middle who might be facilitating that conversation is able to see everybody and everybody who's participating in that conversation is able to see the the rest of uh of the congregation so there are just like so many little different things that we do that i think really start to organically express what the community really believes what the community really wants um their Christianity to look like. And it's not some sort of like set tradition that's already been created that we're just simply recreating. I don't know if that fully captures religionless Christianity. And I certainly don't know if that's what Bonhoeffer was getting at, but it's our little attempt, I think, at maybe uh, manifesting a type of religionless Christianity. Yeah. I've only seen the video uh, that was, uh, that you had a link to mm -hmm. of Solomon's Force, but I found it very interesting. Uh, I also noticed that everybody's under 30. Uh, <laughs> well, at that time, it, it was that way. I mean, that was like that video was like almost 10 years old now. So but yeah, at the time, it was like around, you know, people in their 30s, 40s or so. Yeah. Yeah. Which is good, I think. It doesn't give a lot of direction to the octogenarians. <laughs> but, right. But uh, yeah, I, I applaud that. Uh, yeah, I, I found that I've, I've looked at a couple of things recently on video. Uh, we have a community here. Are you familiar with the Bruderhof? Mm -mm. You're probably familiar with Mennonites. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with the Mennonites. I'm yeah. not familiar with that yeah. group, though. The Bruderhof are kind of like them. They're sort of a, a branch of the Mennonites. Hmm. Uh, and there are several communities uh, around Woodstock, New York. 
three of them. Um, and so they have some videos. So I was looking at them the other day. You know, they uh, they have a common purse. They um, have, uh, I think, daily uh, get-togethers for, for prayer, which is spontaneous. They live very simply. None of them has, you know, a high-pressure job. or So I, I was kind of interested in them as well. But I, I found Solomon's Porch more interesting because there seemed to be more vitality there. Yeah. Is, is, that, is that true in reality? Is there a lot of vitality? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's changed a lot. Uh, we got a new pastor a couple years ago. Um, our founder and former pastor is now doing a lot of like political organizing work and everything. And so he's still around the community, still lives in Minneapolis and... Uh, but he's doing other things now. And so, yeah, there's just been a lot of changes. And obviously COVID has affected Solomon's Porch just like every other church. But we're still, you know, we're still around and we're still doing it. And um, yeah, there's still definitely a lot of energy, lots of different things going on. So, yeah. That may be, that may be a model. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was, that's always been my hope. Um, we'll, we'll see if other churches maybe in the future kind of start to uh, adopt, you know, different things from Solomon's Porch that end up working in their own context, in their own community. Has anybody done that? Um, you know, there are other churches like Solomon's Porch, and Doug, who is our founder and former pastor, he has written a lot about Solomon's Porch, and probably at one time a lot of churches popped up adopting a lot of the ideas that he had written about from what we were experimenting at Solomon's Porch. So uh, I'm sure there are a lot of churches that have in some way, shape, or form adopted a lot of the practices that we we hold at Solomon's Porch. How do you hope that your book, There Is No God and Mary Is His Mother, inspires and liberates its readers? That's a good question. <laughs> Sales have not been exciting. <laughs> uh, whatever I hoped may not be coming to fruition. I, I guess I... I would hope that, I think there are a lot of people that sort of live on the borderline, which I guess is true of how the emerging church mm-hmm. happened also. I think there are a lot of people who who have yearnings, strivings, don't find uh, churches as most of them, with maybe the exception of Solomon's Porch, uh, don't find most churches uh, inspiring, uh, don't find them very relevant in some cases. And I, so I sort of hope to speak to that segment of people that are, you know, kind of on the borderline. But then I think there are people who aren't even on the borderline uh, who just sort of dismiss religion out of hand because they think it's a bunch of irrational beliefs. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of a lot of books written by people like Sam Harris and uh, I've forgotten the other guy's name, but uh, the so-called new atheists. Mm-hmm. You know, that's. Their complaint is, well, you know, this is crazy. Well, these are supposed to be statements about the universe. Are you nuts? They say, this is this is science of 25 years, 2,500 years ago, which, of course, it isn't. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. But I think there are a lot of people who are on that wavelength uh, who would hopefully have, you know, take another look and say, oh, well, there's a, another way of looking at this. Uh, and I have had, actually, uh, some feedback from from some of those folks that said, yeah, oh, you gave me another way of looking at it. So, yeah, I guess sort of those two camps, uh, sort of the borderline Christians and the total turned-off non-Christians. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Last question, Thomas. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Well, <laughs> in a lot of ways, I guess. Uh, you can email me, and I, I'll give you my email address right now. It's Tom Cathcart, all one word, T-O-M-C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T, 
450 uh, at gmail.com. Uh, that's one way. My co-author of many books, Danny, uh, and I have a website uh, which has all of the books that we've written together on there, but it also has this one. Uh, and the, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the URL for that. Oh, it's uh, Plato and a Platypus, all one word, Plato and a Platypus. Dot com. The reason for that is that the sort of the, the bestseller of the bunch was called Plato and a Platypus Walking into a Bar. So that's another way. That's it, I guess. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I, this book was absolutely incredible. It was one of those books where I saw the title, saw the, the book cover when Fortress uh, reached out to me about it. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And and uh, yeah, I, as somebody who was really interested in Bonhoeffer early on in seminary, was really fascinated with his idea of religionless Christianity, and especially with my interest in the emergent church and kind of the connections between those two. I'm really excited to see that other people are still having that conversation. And honestly, your book, because it's so succinct, uh, I don't know if there's a better book around religionless Christianity that really succinctly kind of addresses it. Uh, It's such a great introduction to the idea of religionless Christianity. So thank you so much for writing it. Oh, good. Thank you. If you'd like to connect with Thomas and New Tycoon and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meniga. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.